Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 75, wrapping up 2017, recorded on December 19th, 2017. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. It's been a while since we've done a podcast. Many things have intervened. I know. I always tell people, they're like, well, oh, I can't wait to listen to your podcast. I'm like, oh, yeah, we record every other week, but we do not really record every other week. That's the plan, but it doesn't always work that way. You know, we have good intentions. We have good intentions. And isn't this the season of good intentions? I think it is. I think so. Uh, Last night, I think, was the last night of Hanukkah. And... So I always think of Hanukkah, you know, as I've gotten older, instead of it being about gifts and somehow like competition with Christmas, it's it's more about like mitzvahs or good deeds or doing good. And so this year, I'm not sure I actually did anything really good for anyone, but I at least tried every night when I was doing the candles to make like a good wish or a wish for the future or like put some positive energy on the world. A very small thing, but it's kind of like gratitude or anything else. I think, you know, get yourself in a holly gel. Is that is I was about to say get yourself in a holly jolly mood by making a a positive uh, thought on uh, Hanukkah, but that sort of seems to be conflating holidays there, doesn't it? I can't be the only person who does Chrismica, though. That's got to be a real thing for lots of people. I think there are lots of people, and I think you should also count if you didn't do anything bad. The absence of bad is, in fact, a good. There you go. I'm going to count that. So, like, the absence of eating cookies and Cheetos must mean that I was really good the whole rest of the day. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, we're going to get towards the end of the podcast a little bit into sort of wrapping up the year and thinking about it, but there have been some interesting art activities in my life recently, or at least since the last podcast, which I think was recorded in November. Um, The first of which is I went on a great trip with the MFA uh, patrons and fellows group to MFA is the MFA is the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston. And uh, just like, you know, Beyonce, the MFA needs only one name. Uh, So when we went to New York on this little trip, I think there were only 14 of us on the trip. Um, It was two days, basically an overnight um, with lots of access. And actually, I was thinking, having lived in New York for many, many years, this is the most art access that I ever had, which is kind of a hilarious thing that you have to live somewhere else in order to do it. But so basically, the most sort of sexy thing that we did, if I may, is we went to see at the David Zwerner Gallery, uh, which let me just say, first of all, a gallery, galleries in New York, I think, are unlike any other. There are some galleries that you walk into and you think you might have walked into like a closet and you keep looking for like, where's the rest of the gallery? But that's it. And David's Warner's kind of the opposite. You walk into it and it's almost like a museum. And in fact, from a financial point of view, I don't totally understand how he makes money because there was, I don't think a lot of this art is getting sold, but I'm getting besides myself, but, but it is like a museum in that sense because it's like important work. So the most interesting thing that happened on that tour is that the curator told us that when they built the gallery, one of the things that was very important to David's Warner who founded the gallery was that he would be able to have a Richard Serra installation in his gallery. 
Wow. So, I already am beginning to sense the scale. Yeah. So if you're not familiar at all with Richard Serra, most of his work, I would say, is in possession of museums or in enormous public spaces. He does huge, huge is not a big enough word, enormous, like ginormous, gigantor, like he just does really, really big and heavy installations. Um, And one of the things about being able to house his stuff in an indoor location is your floor has to be able to support a massive amount of weight. Um, And so it's not only that, but like, how do you get it in? And basically what they did when they built the gallery is, A, they made it so the floor could support like thousands of tons. I mean, beyond what a normal floor should have to be able to support, okay? Um, Plus, they made all the walls in the gallery completely flexible to the point where they can get like taken in and out and moved. And for particular exhibitions, they hire a crew of builders to come in and essentially rebuild the space. I mean, it's like it's shocking and amazing and just whatever. So the and so the piece that was in the gallery right now, Richard Serra's, is a piece um, which has four large round solid masses of uh, concrete that each way, I'm going to mess this up. It's now been far enough that I can't remember. It was something obscene like 900 tons or I I can't remember. And I apologize for this. I'm sure I could look it up and find out. But the idea was that they were all different different, um, sizes, but they weighed the same. And it was the idea of all these cylinders weighing the same and yet... And being essentially the same shape and yet being different sizes. And that, I think, is sort of the interest of the piece. And you walk among them and you're allowed to touch them. And um, actually, my boyfriend played a very good joke on me, which is we were there. And because you're allowed to touch it, he said, oh, this is so weird. This one has a soft spot. So, of course, I walked right up to it and started pushing on it. And I was like, I don't feel the soft spot. Well, you guys, why would a concrete sculpture have a soft spot? It clearly doesn't, but he laughed a lot when I kept looking for the soft spot. So you got to use your brain when you're thinking about these things. Um, and then upstairs above the Richard Serra installation, um, there were some of Richard Serra's paintings, which I had never seen. I didn't even know that he did paintings. They were more prints than paintings because what he does is basically a process where he creates these sort of... Um, as you would not be surprised, sort of raised or textured uh, beds or plates and then kind of rubs them from behind with a very heavy rock or stone like plinth and then creates these kind of striped mono prints, which are, were interesting. Um, I people should see you. You're waving your hands around yeah. as if they if can you, all if see, you could see what me you're waving doing. Waving my hands around. I'm just trying to think. It's so hard to describe art. I'll try to include some pictures in the post here. Um, I, I do also just think that like I did have a moment where I was like if these paintings were not by Richard Serra would they be interesting I don't know because they are and so they were interesting because they're by him but I don't know about that but the whole reason that the David Warner Gallery was sexy and exciting and made you feel all those fancy parts about access was because the Yayoi Kusama uh, infinity rooms, okay, these immersion rooms that she has, pardon me, there were three of them at the David's Warner Gallery along with a bunch of her paintings and some sculpture. So who is Yayoi Kusama? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Um, she is a pop artist. She is in her 
I'm going to say 70s or 80s. She lives in Japan. She voluntarily lives in a mental institution. Um, she can't travel anymore. And she paints all her paintings now, like, sitting down at a table. Uh, so there's, like, a very particular way why they look the way that they look because she works on the borders, which are closest to her at the table, first. Um, but she, she's, her self-stated goal is to be bigger than Andy Warhol, who of course is like the master of pop art. Um, and she feels that through her social media reach, she is now bigger than Andy Warhol. So you can imagine that like the fact that these infinity rooms and these immersion rooms have this, um, huge cult following on Instagram. They're very like popular places, you know, every big like art or craft blogger that, you know, has, has at least one photo on their feet of them in one of these rooms. Cause they're all over the U S certainly and all over the world. But what they are is, um, you, she's sort of known as the queen of polka dots. That's sort of like the first thing is you walk in the ceiling, the floor, the walls, all the objects in it are covered in polka dots. Right. Um, and then she has a bunch of other stuff, but we sort of didn't believe it when they said, Hey, you guys, there'll be people who are camped out overnight when you get there. So let's meet up the block. Cause we were going to get to go in 15 minutes before the gallery opened before the crowd. Um, so we met at the top of the block. By the time we were getting ready to go in, the line to get in had gone all the way around the block. Okay, the New York City block is huge, by the way. Had gone all the way around the block, and people kept thinking we were in line, and we had to keep moving closer and closer to the entrance because the line was chasing us closer and closer to the entrance, the back of the line. It was almost wrapping to the beginning of it. It was kind of insane. And people were, you know, talking and like, I'm here to see this and like showing on their phone. They didn't know the artist's name. They didn't know whatever, but they knew the location because it had been geotagged and they wanted to get their photo in there. So you're lucky you didn't get swallowed up by this. I know it was crazy. So we walked in in front of the people who had been camped out there overnight. And so they had a kind of negative reaction to that, as you can imagine. Did they look daggers at you? Yeah, but it was before the gallery opened, to be fair. So, you know, it's not like we were actually taking anything away from them. So then when you go in, you have to put booties on your feet because, again, they're immersion rooms. So their artwork is basically you're trying to keep it clean. Um, And the first room we went into was entirely mirrored, and it's an infinity of mirrors. So you look in the mirror, and it's like a million reflections of yourself back, and the center is mirrored, and the walls are mirrored. And if you look in the center are these little holes, and when you look in them, you can see all these glass balls, which, like, infinitely mirror themselves again. So it's just like everywhere you look, it's just magnified, magnified, magnified. And then the next— It's very disorienting, right? Totally. It, it yeah. could, uh, completely could be. The thing is they're hurting you through. Even at 15 minutes early, we had to be divided, even with our small group, into two groups because they're small rooms. And what then, I heard was that if you go in, mm-hmm. they give you like, is it 15 seconds or five, some very brief time in well, each room, and then they hustle longer, you out. We had like five minutes, so I'm just going to say Whoa. it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Um, but so we go in and they hustled us, you know, the next group in and the next room was my least favorite, which was an entirely black room. But when you look in this center cylinder through the holes, which are at different heights, there's sort of like a, um, light show, like a clubby kind of infinity light show where you look in and the inside of the cylinder is mirrored. So it looks like it's much bigger than it is. And then it does different sort of LED colored lights. I have some video of it on my vlog this week. So you can check that out there. 
Um, and then the last room was like quintessential Yayoi Kusama. Say that 10 times fast. Um, which was white walls, white floors, white ceiling, huge white porcelain flowers covered in these red polka dots. And basically what they said to us is they're like, you're so lucky to be in this room when it's not packed full of people. Because I guess that's one of the rooms they don't actually hustle people out of. And so it was pretty cool and neat. And then we walked on into her paintings and it was a room filled with art that reminded me very much of Aboriginal art or some uh, different African like dashiki cloth and stuff like that. Really interesting. Just like some simple, basic, you would call them almost naive shapes repeated ad nauseum to create an effect, which is really kind of alluring, insane colors, crazy color combinations that shouldn't work. No like attempt at like you know, focal point or whatever, but still very much using sophisticated ideas about design. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. My favorite moments, however, were to see how disrespectful people are to art. There was a platform that has these big, um, you know, porcelain pieces on it. And one of the first things that happened when it opened to the public is a, a family came in, two parents and a kid, and they just let the kid run around and up onto the platform he went because that's what a little kid does. And they didn't even grab him. The guard had to go like chasing after the kid. Wow. I saw people touch paintings. I saw people literally back into work because they were trying to get a photo. Like it was just kind of amazing to me. I mean, I appreciate the people who are not used to museum situations situations are coming in to see art but I also was kind of thinking mm. how odd that you don't have the sense that you're not allowed to touch things but who knows anyway so that was great that was definitely the highlight um, there was a tour of the Brooklyn Art Museum or a portion of it. There were um, a couple other stops along the way. I ended up going to MoMA because I can't stay away from it that's a museum of modern art um, one of the cool things is we went to a private collection in someone's home, and I have often looked from MoMA out to the buildings that are above the sculpture park, their outdoor sculpture park there, or sculpture garden, I should call it. Um, and so the collector actually lived in one of those apartments, and so you could see into the MoMA sculpture park from those windows, and I had always wondered what those apartments looked like from the inside. And the answer yeah. is not that great. I thought they would be like super fancy luxe. They just seemed like a really old building. And um, the collection that he had was interesting. Not my taste, but definitely I can see interesting. And, you know, uh, the apartment was so clean and sparse that it looked – the kitchen did not have a single item on any surface. It was all chrome. It looked like – I don't know how to describe it. It was so – it was like – it was cold. It was so clean. Do you know what I mean? There was not even the table. Cookies had been put on the windowsill and water for us, not on the table, because I guess that would have been clutter. It was just it. It. it I am a messy tchotchke kind of girl. So it was interesting. The art, however, I expected, given that some of it was cold and linear, uh, but some of it was quite brightly colorful and expressive. But the thing that was the most interesting is what this guy does is he hunts for artists who haven't yet risen. So the art's cheaper. They either have had like a gallery show or maybe even haven't shown yet. Um, and he buys a lot of pieces from them, three or four pieces at like when you're talking in hundreds or thousands of dollars um, instead of 
you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and then he often does a commission where he has the artist live in his home. He has another home in Ohio. Um, and they live in his home with him and then they do a piece of work that's site specific for the house. And he <clears throat> has been looking to try to donate the house when he dies, right? To like keep it as a museum because the work is so site specific, but it doesn't seem like anyone I in, um, I think he lives in Cincinnati, uh, is, is interested. So who knows? Um, but yeah, so that was kind of cool and interesting. Um, it was just also fun to see New York as a visitor in that way, I guess I would say, but it was a good experience all around. I I really enjoy learning more about artists and that is the it's so it's more than just seeing it it's the stories i told you about yayoi kasama or richard Serra or the way the gallery is put together or anything like that i wouldn't know those things if the curators hadn't told me and i feel like i'm a better art viewer and art storyteller and artist thinking about those process things and those structural issues and all that kind of stuff so that's why i always think that tours um with a knowledgeable guide are just the best Anyway, that's my piece about New York. Okay. We're all jealous. <laughs> I'm so glad. So um, I also went to the Portland Museum of Art in Portland, Maine. Are you jealous of that, Mom? Yes. Um, which was much bigger than I thought it was going to be. I've actually tried to go before, but it was closed for renovation. So I was very glad to get to go this time. Uh, part of it is a historic home. Part of it is a collection that's like a dedicated collection that has to be there. And then the rest of it is all these exhibits that change all the time. They have some permanent collection. They also have like one Picasso, you know, um, uh, one, I'm trying to think, they have like two Renoirs. I mean, so you can sort of go down like a who's who of art and they have one or two of them. A Gauguin, but not from his Tahiti period, you know. This is sounding a little bit snotty. It's not snotty. It's that I have been privileged enough to see some of the great museums in the world and to spend time with some of the great art. It's descriptive. It is only snotty if you think that art from Gauguin, not from the Tahiti timeline, is lesser. So maybe it's the you're tone, the snotty it's one. That you're tone the snotty one. Your, you know, they have one Gauguin. They have... One Picasso. Okay. I'm just saying, I don't have any Gauguins or any Picassos. So, you know, I would happily take any of those things from their walls. I think they might mind. Uh, but it was really great. I would totally go again. And my favorite thing about it, this is going to sound childish, but it did make the experience a million times better, is they have free lockers. I don't know why all museums don't have free lockers. It was great to be able to, like, ditch my purse and my coat and, like, everything and not have to... Think about it. A lot of times, even with a coat check, right, you can't leave your purse and you can't take in anything bigger than a certain mm -hmm. size. It just made mm -hmm. it really pleasant to walk around the museum unencumbered. Um, but it was really, really good. And by the way, as a complete side note, unrelated to this, we ate lunch across the street at this place called Empire Chinese. Fantastic dim sum. They are great. I highly recommend if you're around Portland or you want to make a day trip of it. It's about a two-hour drive from Boston. Go to Empire Chinese and go to the Portland Museum of Art and you will have a happy day of art and dumplings. 
There you go. A perfect day. Right? I want to go back now and just eat the dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's sort of all the art peeping talk that I have, I think. Although you and I went to a great museum at the Museum of Fine Arts right before the New York trip. Do you want to talk about that? A great exhibit, you mean? Well, I thought it was a great event. It was a great event. It was, uh, they have an exhibit which on the surface looks to be kind of a mishmash. You know, they might, they have a bunch of Frank Stella's and then they have some other stuff that at first you don't think is related. I think you mean Rothko's. I'm sorry, Rothko's, but the curator who took us around really explained the concept behind the exhibit, which was, was it stillness? Yeah, it was like the question of, like, it was called seeking stillness. But the idea, I'm not sure they conveyed that. I'm not sure they captured whether it was supposed to be right after you've gotten stillness, whether it's something that you're looking for and trying to find it. It, 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 The exhibit sort of went over my head a bit, but one interesting room was actually... uh, 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 was it maybe a 15th century painting or 16th century? And it was in a in a an enclosed space that sort of had a chapel-like effect, and you even could sit on a bench in front of it, so it was almost like being in church. And you're wondering, what does this have in common with all these other things? There was photography. There was all kinds of other things. And I don't know if they were trying to have you think about stillness in terms of you being still. This was a painting which theoretically was a pieta. It was Jesus after he was removed from the cross and the angels were there. But there were certain things that the curator pointed out, like one side of the Jesus figure was limp as if he was dead, and the other side, the arm was kind of alert, and it was as if things were about to happen. So maybe that was another look at stillness. Well, here's why I thought the event was interesting. Because... It, let me just mention, yeah. like Because it was a moment between inactivity and then activity, between death and then life. That's what they said, is that one side of his body was like dead and one side was coming alive. And it was that moment. But the reason I thought the event was interesting is because I think I would have gone through that exhibit and just been like, okay, 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 ooh, Eh, Rothko's. And I never would have even thought about the title Seeking Stillness. I would have been just like, this is super random. Um, But because as an event, what they had us do is sit at these little tables and we had to discuss what piece of art we would put in place of that 15th or 16th century Jesus painting, you know, and they gave us some options. And that became interesting because we did have to actually define what does seeking stillness mean and what does putting a particular piece of art there, what's the import of it? And having to think like a curator in that way, A, made me kinder towards the curators and the choices they make, and B, like, just gave me some perspective on how every decision that's made about placing art is so fraught 
not just with like, what's the choice that I want, like emotionally or intellectually, but also like what's available within the museum. You know, certain uh, images can only be displayed for a certain period of time, like prints and drawings and stuff because they were photographs because the lights and they fade. And so they have to, they can only be on out for like a month or two. You know, it was just, it was interesting because there's all sorts of stuff I hadn't thought about and it made me see the exhibit differently. I still not sure I like, like the exhibit or agree with the seeking stillness thing, but I thought the event was very interesting. And I also think it's one of the reasons or one of the things that actually blogging has done for me on a totally different level and which is having to think about writing a tutorial is actually very tough. Because it's not just about I did this and then this. It's also about like helping people to understand why, what they could substitute. I should put it another way. Writing a good tutorial is actually really hard. You know, what is the appropriate photo that goes with this? You know, if I only have these photos available because I didn't manage to get the other one, how do I make this work with the text so that nobody can tell that I had to use this photo even though I wished I had a different photo? Or even being able to envision like what are the photos that would help with I mean, it's all very complicated and so it has the same kind of curatorial effect and the same of like I probably for every photo that appears in my blog there's probably like 30 photos that I took to try to get that one and it's the same curation of what is the message I'm trying to send you know how do I get this idea across you know is this too similar to something else that's already been seen what is it I'm trying to say does this need to have room for text over the photo etc etc and so there's also multiple things that you're thinking when you're going through the exhibit and then again when you're planning out your blog post and you can't put them all in because then it's too many different threads you have to figure out what's the important thing for this audience for this blog post And what should I leave out? Because I think what you're leaving out is as important as what you're putting in. Yes. Yes. I think so, too. I mean, I think that the – it's the same with, like, writing, which is thinking about – so for anybody who doesn't know, my father died uh, two weeks ago. And I had to write his eulogy or a eulogy for him. And thinking about how to, we were each limited to, it had to be less than five minutes. And I thought I would cry. Not everybody. Not everybody was. But it was supposed to be under five minutes and I thought I might cry. So I was like, I'm just going to get myself to under three minutes. That way when I'm nervous and crying and whatever, I'll still stay under five. But to try to boil somebody's life down to three minutes is insane. And what in the end I had to do is say, I'm, I'm not trying to get a picture of him as a person. I'm trying to pick one aspect, one part. And I think you do that all the time when you're writing, you know, anything is you're not, and when you're, you know, curating exhibit and when you're, you know, the reason you're going to have 50 Matisse exhibits is because we're focusing on different aspects of him. The reason I can write art journal every day, uh, posts every Friday for like, five years is because there's so many different aspects. There's so many little tiny bits to talk about. I'm working on a post right now about why you should, should, um, art journal. And I did one that's going to appear, uh, before this podcast actually airs, but, uh, on why you should bullet journal. And again, it's so interesting to try to encompass these huge notions into and parse them down into very small, 
words and ideas because sometimes what you really need to do with these huge ideas is you want to say, okay, I'm going to give you a post about this, a post about this, a post about this, but then it's like, okay, here's my 20 post series on why you should do this instead of my one quick post to like poke you in the butt and get you to do it, you know? You know what I've noticed this year in Carve December, which is your annual 31 days of carving stamps, is that this year you're making each entry, each daily entry, not necessarily be about carving a stamp and showing how you're using it, but it's they're actually like little teaching moments where you talk about some aspect of the way you're approaching each carving. And I actually find it, even as a non-carving person, I'm finding it very interesting because I'm learning more about what you're thinking about each time. I I think they're really great little mini lessons. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Somebody actually um, asked me a question and said, is there going to be a way that you could post all of these together so that, you know, we can see them forever? And I was like, well, they'll be here on Instagram forever, you know. Um, But when I started Carve December, um, my dad was really sick at that time, and I wasn't sure if I was going to do Carve December, frankly. But then so many people posted all these things saying like, oh, I'm so excited. Carve December starts tomorrow. Oh, I'm so excited. Carve December starting this week. And I thought, oh, gosh, I can't not do it. So. Well, it's interesting because you were you stopped blogging for a bit. I did. You stopped blog for a bit. You stopped all kinds of things, but you did do Carve December. I did. And. Part of that was just like the amount of effort and time that it would take, you know, some of the other things just take a lot more time and effort. But part of it was also, I kept thinking, and I think anytime somebody is sick or dies or is dying, like it does make you consider what you're doing and what you, like, what will your legacy be? What will people say about you or anything like that? And I, I sort of felt like I wanted to be more generous I don't, I mean, I think I'm fairly generous anyway, Um, but I wanted to somehow like give a little bit. And so I thought that if each, I actually decided before I did it this year, I was like, if each of the days I can include some tidbit or lesson or something that gets somebody excited and turns carving into something they want to do or makes it easier for them, like that's that's the goal. So that's been actually a very purposeful choice. So I'm glad that you noticed it. Um, and it's been good for me because I think that encouraging other people helps, helps me at least take the focus off myself and not feel self-conscious about stuff. And it makes, it takes off some of the pressure because it, it's like, this doesn't have to be a brilliant stamp. What it has to be is a stamp that teaches a lesson. What it has to be is a stamp that is an example of something for somebody, you know? Um, Do you also find the actual act of carving kind of meditative? You have to pay enough attention. You have to pay enough attention so you can't be thinking of 47 other things. You can't multitask, but you don't have to pay so much attention that you don't sort of get into a zone it's super zen it's super zen and like I find myself wanting to do more and more intricate stamps just because I could car the thing everybody says once they start carving stamps is it's completely addictive 
And it is. Like the first time you start carving, you want to carve like eight stamps, 10, like you're carving, carving, carving. It's like a craze. And now I've reached the point where like, I get out of the habit of stamp carving because I put my stuff away and I don't do it. And then as soon as I start doing it, I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. Why don't I do this all the time? And I'm wanting to be like more and more intricate. And I find it really hard to pull myself away. Like today, right before we were recording this podcast, and you said to me that you had to eat before we could record. I mean, how childish is that, mom? You have to eat dinner. Sorry, I have bodily needs. But I was like, oh man, I haven't eaten. And that's because I was carving stamps. And like, it's so fun that I completely lose track. So I love it. It reminds me of sewing in that way is that it's just a brain streamliner easier. I don't know what it is. You get into the flow, what they call flow. flow. Oh yeah. And you just, again, and you're just taken out of your own body. Mm -hmm. And I flow. Um, Plus I got to watch all of Elf on TV while I carved. So that was pretty. I don't know why you like that show. Are you I kidding me? Mom, that movie. You're just a ninny-headed muggins, Mom. You don't understand the spirit of Christmas. Singing loud for all to hear is the surest way to spread Christmas cheer. God, I was glad I would not be <laughs> sitting next to you. Anyway, let's finish about Carve December because... Uh, there's still some of December left. Yes. And by and the way, if you're out there and you haven't ever carved a stamp or you haven't carved a stamp for carved December, just do one, just do one. All you need is an eraser and an exacto knife and you can actually carve a little stamp. I mean, all you need is a potato and a knife and you can actually do something. But I just encourage you. It's really fun. It's really easy. I think people think of stamp carving as like something that's crazy and out there, but it is not. It's super fun and you should do it. And also, even if you don't like carving stamps, look at the Carve December hashtag because there are some people out there with mad skills who just do incredible stuff day after day. And it's so inspiring to see it all. Let me be the first to say people can buy your book, Carve Stamp Play, or they can <laughs> buy your online classes about stamp carving. And now that's the advertisement for this show. Thanks, Mom. Well, why don't you tell people quick about the giveaway because it is the giving season it's true so actually um the good folks at brother are running a giveaway right now for a design and cut which is if you don't know what a design and cut is it's like the scanning cut but without the scanner so you need to use it um because it doesn't have a scanner inside and it doesn't have a computer inside you need to use it like with your smartphone with your tablet with your computer something like that Um, But basically, it's a great cutter, and they're giving away six for free. And all you have to do is you take a selfie video of yourself with your phone that just says, uh, like, hi, my name's Julie Faye Van Balzer, and I'm an – and you say whatever it is that you do. So I'm an artist, or you could say I'm a mom, or I'm a patent lawyer, or I'm a a neuroscientist, or whatever it is that you do. Um, I want to say that I'm a neuroscientist. Can I just say that from now on? Who, who, what are the chances of running into another neuroscientist who'd be able to call me on that? In Boston? Okay, never mind. Hi. I should not say that then. Okay. I'm, I'm a lion tamer. Um, and then go. you have to say what you want to cut. So you say, and I like to cut paper. I like to cut stencils. I like to cut whatever. That's literally all you have to do. You upload the video to the site um, that brother has. And then I think you have to post it to your Facebook page too, and that's it. And then you're entered to win a designing cut. So I'll put the link in the post so that you can find it, but and the deadline. And yeah. And the deadline, I think it's around 
Christmas, just after Christmas. I think it's after Christmas, which is good because I think this podcast is going to air on Christmas. So I hope <laughs> I haven't just said something terrible, but I'm pretty sure it runs through January, I think. Fingers crossed. If not, I'll just edit the section out, maybe. So, um, other than that, I know that I said like this post is really about, or this, this post, this podcast is really about wrapping up 2017. This year has flown by. I probably say that every year, but I thought it was a good time to sort of look back at the year gone by in my art life and maybe think about some ideas or what might be some art goals. I'm not going to call them resolutions because I think resolutions fail more often than they don't. And it's, and they're sort of destined for failure, but a goal is like something that you're hoping for. Sometimes you hit it and sometimes you don't, but sometimes you just get close and that's enough. Uh, so 2017 was a good year. It's hard to believe that the blog anniversary celebration is already 11 months ago. I mean, that seems crazy to me. Um, rereading some old posts recently, I feel like I'm less philosophical on my blog these days, uh, which is interesting to me. And I sort of, one of my goals for 2018 is to get back to philosophizing a little bit more about art and the, um, the art of making art, the science of making art, the nuts and bolts of making art, the whatever you want, the philosophy of making art. Do you think it's because now that you're also doing the Bujo, the bullet journal, that a lot of your philosophizing goes into there? No, I think it's more that I actually make a lot more art now than I used to. That's good. And so it used to be that when I was looking for something to blog about, I would write something because I maybe didn't have any art to share. Now it's like I actually find my schedule so packed with there are plenty of like – Museums I go to or galleries or events where I, I keep thinking, oh, that should be a blog post. But then it's like two months have gone by and I haven't shared it because I, there's so much other content to share. So I think I just want to make a little dedicated space, you know, to do a little bit more philosophizing, even if it's some simple stuff, which I, I still do. Sometimes you'll see it. And I think those are the best blog posts in my mind which are the posts where you see things like I'll say some things to take away from this exhibit or some things, you know what I mean? Just the more intellectual content and less, um, look at this picture. Now I run away. Okay. That kind of we, I think speaking for myself, I would welcome that. Well, I'm so glad. Um, and so what else happened in 2017 artistically? I, um, well, you have uh, achieved one of your long-term goals I have. because you've had three different exhibits, public exhibits, which Four. included your art. Four? Four. Yeah. Oh. So at the Mosesian, two I that had, are up right now. Yeah, so at the Mosesian, I had some work in a print show, which sold, which is super exciting earlier this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the Watertown Art Association, my painting won first prize, which was super exciting. Then I have work, I have three pieces in two different exhibits currently one at the University Place Garage in Cambridge. Um, or University Place Gallery, I guess it's called. For the, for the Cambridge Art Association. For the Cambridge Association. Art Association. I have a piece there on display. Um, and then I have two pieces on display at the Mosesian right now in their abstract exhibit, um, which is kind of exciting. This uh, 
the unfortunate part is that a I was out of town for the opening of both of those exhibits. B they've been on display while everything's been happening with my dad, so I ha I barely got to see either of them, and I haven't really taken any photographs or anything there, but. I'm pleased and proud that that happened. It had been a major goal of mine to get my work into uh, an exhibit or a gallery this year. And it, you're right. It did happen. So patting myself on the so back. So that's excellent. So, yeah, yeah, I just need to get my uh, my myself together a little bit more to actually apply to things, which I'm not always very good about. So that's that can be another goal for 2018. Um also in 2017, I feel like I did a lot of videos. The vlog, um, which I started at the end of 2016 in August, um, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a regular thing or just like a six-month trial, but I found that I really enjoyed sharing in that way, and it's a really nice community on YouTube. I see a lot of the same people commenting every week, which always means a lot to me, and I really like that. Um so that's been surprisingly fun. I've really enjoyed it. So I'm going to continue with that. Um, I think personally, artistically, I have a couple art goals for myself. And I always set myself art goals that are really based on developing new skills. I don't know um, um, how anybody else does it, but most of the time it's like, these are the skills that I would like to acquire this year, and then I have to figure out how to acquire them. So I've wanted to sew my own clothes for a long time. I can sew a quilt, but I can't sew clothing, and, a bit, and I'm a little intimidated by patterns and stuff. So I've looked for classes a million times and had a lot of trouble finding them, so I finally found a place that will offer private classes on my schedule because part of it is, like, I'm out of town too much. I'm going to miss three classes. I'm going to – you know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't make it work. So I think I'm going to take some classes and learning how to create from a pattern and also adjust a pattern to fit my body and stuff like that because I would like to sew my own clothes. So now I've said that out loud to everyone. I hope it actually Now you have happens, to do it. I know, right? Um, so that's one of my art goals. Um, I have another art goal, which is I would like to, I would like to sell some work. My house is full of so much art and I hoard it and I hold on to it and I don't want to let it go because I love it. But my house is full of so, I mean, I have piles of art. And so somebody said to me, they're like, you have to learn to let go of it. You have to learn to let go of it. So my goal is to figure out uh, how that's going to happen and to sort of say goodbye forever to those pieces that I love. Um, but they'll find happy homes, I hope. So that'll be good. That's kind of my big stuff. I don't know. Looking back at 2017, do you have thoughts? On um, your art life? Well, they can be on my art life or they can be <laughs> on yours. I have one that I thought of for me, which is I have a whole bunch of museum memberships, and there are actually some of these museums that I haven't didn't go to the entire year. The Cordova. I read, yeah, exactly. You, I've read all the stuff and the reviews, and and I just didn't kick myself on the butt and get out of the house to go. So my resolve is not to. Not to have museum memberships that I don't use. Yes. Maybe it just means I'll wipe out all the memberships, no! but I would like to. <laughs> I would like to 
get out and go. Yeah, I you know I had a museum to the Peabody and uh, a membership to the Peabody Essex Museum, which is in Salem. I loved it when I went, but I went like once or twice just because it's like a little. What is it? An hour drive? Yeah, and it's not an easy drive. There's a yeah. lot of and you have to off really, road, well, you know, like off highway. You have to be really careful about when you go because of traffic with rush hour and everything. Right. So that's right. one of the pains in the butt about it. But yeah, like I would love to. It's a great museum, and so I'm sad that I didn't. Make that work. So that's a good one, Mom. We're going to have to – why don't we – like, workout buddies. Let's be museum buddies. Museum buddies. All right. That sounds easier because there could be pie involved. So this will not be a weight loss thing. Well, I sent you something today, which is something that I love, that just made me laugh. It said, so my goal for for um, Christmas or my goal for this month was to lose 10 pounds. Only 15 to go. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say if anybody's looking for art goals, a lot of things that people do tend to be challenges. So for instance, um, Tori Wires runs Draw Riot Daily, which is a project of doing, uh, art every single day. And she puts these prompts up and you do a drawing basically daily. Although sometimes it's not drawing. Sometimes people like stencil or stamp or whatever, um, there are all kinds of people who do, uh, you know, a flower every day, painting every day, collage every day. I do art journal every day ish, uh, which is just about opening your art journal up every, you know, day for 10 minutes and seeing what comes out or doesn't. Um, and there are a bajillion others or you can make up your own. And some people, uh, when you don't feel like you will do it on your own, another good thing is a class. So you can take an in-person class. There are lots of them around. January is always a good time to start. Uh, the new winter session almost always starts in January or February at most museums and art centers and everything else like that. There's also lots of online if you don't live near anything like that. So you can stay in your pajamas. So um, there are things like Creative Jumpstart, which my friend Natalie runs, which um, I'll include a link in the show notes, which basically is like 30 days. So every day there's a 10 minute lesson to get you started. Um, but there's other from, stuff from different artists. Yeah, from different artists. Um, and then, you know, but there's also like lots of different online classes. If you want to learn watercolor or sketchbooks or stamp carving, just take a class because sometimes that gets you kicked into actually doing it but I always think that with goals it's good to write them down uh and put them somewhere that you actually see them so you don't suddenly because if you write it down in a notebook it's like you even your bullet journal you look back and you're like oh yeah I totally forgot about that but if you like hang them on your wall or by your computer or next to your bathroom mirror or over your bed or whatever it is, then every day you're reminded that this is a goal of something that's important to you. The other thing that I would say about art goals is it's, it's like anything, like weight loss goals. 10 pounds in a month is actually a fairly unreasonable goal to put on yourself, right? Um, it's a wish, but you know, realistically for most people losing like half a pound – or a pound a week is more realistic. So like losing four pounds in a month or five pounds is probably more realistic. Um, amputation. Amputation would be, would be really fast, you know. Yeah. Um, 
And so the same is true with art goals, which is if you make art once a month, it's insane to say that you're suddenly going to make art every single day. Okay. If you, you know what I mean? If you haven't, you know, car carved any stamps, it's, it's like a crazy thing to say. I'm going to carve a sandwich today. But if you give yourself a goal, which is like, you know what? Once a week, I'm going to make art of some kind and you like pick a day or you really stick to it. And then once you've done it for a while, you know, once a week, then you sort of step up from there. I think it's like anything, but I think what happens is people make their goals too lofty or too difficult. I'm going to spend an hour every day making art. I'm going to spend, you know, four hours a week making art. Maybe you can only spend 10 minutes once a week doing it, but you are going to get those 10 minutes in every week. And then you know what? You're going to look back at your year and say, yeah, I made art every single week. And maybe next year you can commit to 20 minutes or two days a week, 10 minutes. I'm just saying, set yourself a goal that's achievable. If you surpass it, you're a rock star. And if you don't, you know what? You're still a rock star because you tried. And I think that's, you know, this is the season of effort, isn't it? Didn't we say at the very beginning of this podcast, good intentions? I'm making effort constantly. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Being my mother's tough work. Really hard. It is. It's very hard. It's difficult. I understand that. Um, so, yeah, that's my, that's my soapbox stand on setting artistic goals. Do you have anything to add, Mom? No. I'm just here in admiration. Oh. Well, I'll add something then on your behalf. Which technically is sort of from you because you paid for the vacation where I heard the person say this. See? I, I think it's as good as when I <laughs> buy the thing at the store that I serve for dinner. Right? I should get some credit for having bought it. For an it. excellent taste. Because, by the way, yes, I've sir. been to people's houses where they bought the dinner and it wasn't good. So, anyway. Thank you. Uh, so... At Canyon Ranch, which is a holistic spa, they talked about goal setting at this session that we went to. And I think they were talking a lot of the times about health goals. You know, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to do whatever. And they said the following thing about failure, which has stuck with me for a long time, which is most people set a goal and fail at it many times, like over and over. But the thing is, you shouldn't actually see that as a failure because from a psychological point of view, the whole thing about goal setting and failing is that those are actually, you need those. Almost no one sets a goal and hits it the first time. It's just really, really hard mentally, emotionally, you're not prepared for it. So it's like you keep ramping yourself up, ramping yourself up. So instead of seeing each of the times that you don't make it as a failure, you should see it as one step closer to making it next time. And the idea being that every time you just go a little further, a little further, a little further until, you know what, you are running the marathon, you are making art every day, you are a neurosurgeon, and you can tell people that at a dinner party and they'll act impressed when you've read something important about neurosurgery. I'm just saying. You know, that's not dissimilar from the whole, the whole idea of uh, trying and failing is that you have to concentrate on the trying and not on the failing. Yes. You have to not be listening to that voice in your head that says, see, you didn't do it. Once again, you're a loser. And instead, you have to yeah. listen to the voice that says, good for you for trying. I mean, the thing is, like, yeah. if I knew somebody who ran a marathon and didn't actually manage to make the 26 miles and had to give up partway through, I don't think I'd be like, Hey, you're a loser. You couldn't run all 26 miles, right? You'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing that you did that. Congratulations. Don't worry. You'll make it next time. 
even just being able to face that and try it is oh very daunting. Yes. And I think the thing is, it's so true that most of the time we want to focus on those negative things. I suck. This sucks. I mean, I can only tell you this, like looking at photos, I, I was like, oh, I don't want to post any of these photos. I don't look you know, good or like, even I was thinking we did a slideshow for my dad's memorial service and like he hated to be in photos, but seeing the few and far between photos of him was so, made me so happy. And like to see the ones where he was, you know, making faces that I remember or doing poses or postures or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it was great. And so it just reminded me to like focus on the not the things that you hate about stuff, but the things that you like, the things that you love. Like, let's let's get there. And so making the effort, you guys make a list of resolutions, pin them to the wall, make the well, effort. you know, this is part of the problem of living in an Instagrammy, Facebooky world, which is people edit what they what their life is like and what they look like and what their art life know. is like. Nobody, I mean, like exactly. And so all you're seeing is the one brilliance. out of five hundred times when they liked how they looked or whatever, and that's just not real. Well, it's like anything. I mean, I think like that all the time about art, which is I'm very picky about how I photograph my stuff. I want this kind of light. I want it to be at this kind of angle. I want to have this kind of. You know what I mean? And that's just the way that it goes. Like, you know, it, it, it's not a, a, a real life moment. By the way, I noticed on your Instagram, you seem to be experimenting with weird filters and weird kind of add on things. It's very bizarre. Oh, you're talking about my Instagram story where like I was underwater. Yeah. One where you were underwater. And then this latest one where your face was covered with something. Frost. Yeah, it's very strange. It's like watching a little mini horror movie. Yeah, it's super fun. I think the thing is that all those Instagram filters and stuff that have allow you to do stuff like jump in a, on a fake motorcycle or make the sun come up with a nod of your head. I just think they're super fun and I like to play with all that stuff. Who wouldn't want to be transported? It's like it's it's even you know you think about how people used to pay money to go into a fun house with mirrors that made you look distorted. This is the same thing, but it's free, just with your fingers and your phone. I am enjoying them. I just find them freaky. Me too. I like them. Anyway, is that any? Is that all we have to say, Mom? Is that it? That's it. Oh man. What if this is as good as it gets, you guys? I'll just leave you with that line. Sad. <laughs> anyway, uh, do me a favor. If you like the podcast, please go to iTunes or to Apple Podcasts or wherever and write a positive review about the show. It's a thing that helps more people hear the show, um, and I would really appreciate it. I think that we both would. Um, if you're looking for me, as always, you can find me at ballsdesigns.typepad.com. Do leave us your comments or questions at ballsdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag artingpodcast. And thanks so much for listening and subscribing. And we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. Happy 2018.